We are entering into the season of Advent where we kind of prepare our hearts for that yearly anchor that is so important to our life that God loved us enough to send his son into our world. We'll celebrate it with the remembrance of Jesus incarnate. God becomes flesh and it's often the, the purpose of looking backwards is to look forward and and we have a perfect passage of scripture. Sometimes we'll take a break in the, in the season of Advent to, to look at verses and passages of scripture that can kind of stir our hearts for the theme of Advent. But this year, we find ourselves in a study in First Peter that perfectly aligns with the things that we're going to be talking about in the season of Advent. So First Peter chapter 4, if you have your Bible, and as you're turning there, I uh, get you started with maybe just a, a reflection on what we all just did on, on uh, Thursday. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's uh, one of my favorite holidays. It's, it's one of the last ways that our culture has kind of a non-homogenous gathering where uh, people from, you know, your circle, your circle expands to maybe uh, family members or neighbors or friends that you don't normally see in your typical social gathering. So uh, churchgoers, maybe dining with some family members that wouldn't normally go to church. Uh, it's the time where you just come around and you can be thankful, even, you know, hopefully set aside your, your differences. And we live in a world that feels so divided in so many ways. It's nice to see uh, at least... Uh, if done correctly, a feast where the middle wall of separation can kind of be put on pause. And, um, you know, Thanksgiving's great. You never know what you're going to get. It may not have been put on pause for some of you. Uh, maybe you guys got into some different debates and, and it went down some rabbit trails that, that led to some interesting conversations. And as I was thinking about all the ways that in our subcultures, whether it's church or non-church or, you know, your political leanings, we have so many disagreements in so many ways that we have our discourse. Um, but there's something in the climate of our air right now that it feels like no matter where your leanings are, we're all agreeing on something that maybe could unify us. Any idea what the most unifying thing at Thanksgiving could be as a, as a talking point? It's not politics for sure. It's not music or sports. We, that we can use all of those as ways to just further the divide. It's probably not even holidays. It's every time we gather now, there's so many different debates as to how we should gather and who we should be honoring. But there's something that all of us sense is happening right now in our world. And that is, it appears as though the end of the world is near. <laughs> no matter where your leanings, I mean, think about it. Uh, as churchgoers, we, we love to think about the end. The whole letter of 1 Peter is like with the end in mind. But now we, we, we share some common ground with all sorts of different ways of thinking and worldviews and philosophies. I mean, if you've been following the news, maybe World War III coming out soon. Maybe they're going to roll that one out soon. And that's like, what will happen? Um, you've heard the quote, I don't know with what weapons they'll fight World War III, but if there's a World War IV, it will be fought with sticks because we're going to lay to waste humanity with all of the ways that we have the ability to blow up the world now. Um, also, just stirring in the news, maybe an alien invasion. Some of you are probably interested in that. Are they coming back for the planet they once abandoned? I don't know. Uh, 
how about technology advancing so fast and now we've got these phones that are turning into tiny little artificial intelligence machines and some people are reading the writing on the wall. It's like the singularity is coming soon. Your technology is going to be smarter than you and it's going to eliminate you. The end of the world is going to come at, at like the end of Terminator 2. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, I think so. Uh, we've got those who are making predictions about the weather. So if we, you know, unless we make some major changes to the, the gas guzzling cars, the icebergs will melt and we'll all be underwater. If you live in Idaho, we might be on a coastline, which I, that'd be nice, but you feel bad for all of the current coastland. <laughs> some of you got out of there right in time. We're entering into an election year. You elect the wrong president. Depend, you know, depending on which president you're going for, if the opposite's elected, end of the country. Guaranteed. We elect the wrong one, the most important election of our lifetime, and if we elect the wrong president, our country's going down, and then what will happen? New world order takes over, and it's the end of the world. And no matter where your leanings are now, you can find what is called an eschatology. A, a view of the end is marching towards all of our horizon lines. Now, you guys are at church, which means we're here to consider the end prescribed by the word of God, which says that when you start to hear all of these rumors, when you start to, 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 to see all of headlines and, and all of the subculture and all of the, the categories of different worldviews and philosophies, and they all seem to be pointing towards war and rumor of war, what the word says is that this is the beginning of the end, and Christ is coming soon. This is what we are celebrating. When we talk about Advent, we're not just looking back to the nativity scene. We're looking forward to the end of all things. And this is now the question of the hour. Would have been a great question to send with you into your Thanksgiving feast. If the world is ending, what do you do about it? And, and that's the question that all of you should be asking, no matter which category you felt like was the answer. The question is, so how now shall we live with the end in view? If you have an end in view with Christ on the throne, the word doesn't keep you guessing. It will tell you how now to live in light of the end. Again, this whole letter only works if you keep your eye on the end of the story. And now Peter, as he begins to close the letter, is going to say, so with the end in mind, here's how believers live in a world that is coming to a close. Read with me 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore. So Peter is going to say, considering the end, of the storyline of God, therefore, this is how you should live. Now, before we get into the therefore, which will be the majority of the time we spend in the word, what is that therefore pointing us to? How do believers respond with a horizon of the timeline of the end of the story? But a question remains as we study a letter that is now 2,000 odd years old, if Peter was talking about the end of all things back then, how did we make it this far until now? And one of the easy answers is, if Peter was living at the beginning of the end, how much more are you, those of you who believe? Um, another thing to keep in mind is, for those of you who have paper Bibles, 
which I encourage you to have, consider where you are in the book. There's only a few little pages left in the book of the Bible as we read this, and all of the previous pages of the Bible, for the most part, although some of them are wise sayings for instruction, and some of them are just uh, letters to help us know how to form doctrine and theology, a lot of it, the majority of it, is history. That's what your Bible mostly is. It's a story of God interacting with his creation, and it mostly unfolds in periods of time. So in the beginning, Genesis, there is the first chapter in the timeline of humanity. It's the creation where God made the heavens and the earth, everything in it, and mankind. And then from there, we have the unfolding of the story of God. We have man rebelling against God and falling. We have God judging the evil sin that was plaguing the world. Through his judgment, we see the first signs of the compassionate heart of God to redeem humanity through a select few. That select few eventually ushers in the family of God through Abraham. That's a period of time. Abraham eventually gives us the, the family of God and we receive the law so we would know how to live righteously according to the law. We then see the nation of God, Israel, form a kingdom with kings. And we see that no matter how hard they tried, they could not keep the law. So we have a period of lawlessness that turns into a period of captivity. During the period of captivity, we have our first advent. When the people of God are groaning and waiting for God to send someone to save them. And it is in Roman-occupied Israel where Advent version 1 receives the Messiah. That's what we remember and celebrate every time we have a nativity out. That God so loved the world, he sends his son, and there's so much theology, he sends him to be born in a manger to peasants, and the messengers are shepherds. And, and unfolding is the heart of God in the first coming of Christ as the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end of God's story for humanity was when God sent his son to be the king of the kingdom of God, Christ defeats the enemy, which was not Rome. It was sin and then death. And now he sits on the right hand of the father and the end of the end will be his return. We are in that storyline now at the very end of everything we just referenced as the periods of time. So the people of God have been waiting and waiting and waiting. The Messiah is on the throne. And now here we sit waiting for the final act of the final chapter. And it feels like every time you hear this message preached, you can think, but really, it's 2,000 years. That, it doesn't that kind of make this whole thing expired? Here's a parable because we learn better through life stories. Um, for my Thanksgiving, thank you for asking, we, uh, we actually went up to McCall to be with Daniela's uh, sister and her side of the family. Wonderful time. Had that, that non-homogenous table, just loved it. On the way up to McCall, I have four kids. I don't even need to tell you the story now. So they want to know, are we there yet? That started from Boise to Eagle. They wanted to know, are we there yet? Now we get to Eagle and it's like, not yet, but be patient. I know the plan. We're going to endure till the end. Horseshoe Bend, are we there yet? Almost. And they wait, and they wonder, and they begin to think in their heart that I'm lying, that we're actually going to drive forever. And we get to Cascade. Are we there now? Almost. 
Once we get to Donnelly, I say, children, the end of all things is at hand. <laughs> and there's a short little drive. And yet, the heart of a child still, with just 20 minutes left in the drive, can break down and believe we're never going to get there. Welcome to the timeline of waiting for the Lord. Are we there yet? Over and over and over again. Every time we, the, the trials and various sufferings, it's like, gosh, are we there yet, Lord? Are we there yet? And what the word says today is we are so close. That is what we believe about the period of life that we live in, that at any moment around the bend is the kingdom of God where Christ is on the throne and we live for eternity with him. No more suffering, no more sorrow. Almost there. So the question is, in light of that, how now shall you live? This is a question that everybody has to answer with the end in, in view. This is a question that we answered last week with the timeline of your own individual life in view. And now as the people of God, as he is preparing us to be his bride, ushering him in, how now shall we live so that we represent the living hope of God, knowing the end of the story. So today we get a few very simple answers. And as simple as they are, they will be counterculture and counter-Christian culture sometimes to how we're supposed to live with the end in view. And so we already read verse seven, but he already gives us one answer in the second half of the verse. But the, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, in light of that, be serious and watchful in your newsfeed. As you open the newspaper and you see headlines about wars and rumors of war, just keep watching all of the news reports and be so watchful for all of the ways that we can see the pieces coming together through headline news. It's not what it says. It says, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The ESV and NIV and, and many of the other translations that maybe give us a better picture of what Peter's getting at, they say, be serious and watchful so your prayers aren't hindered. In other words, have a mind that is so clear and so focused on God on the throne and the end of the story, the end of all things being at hand, that all of those other impending doom categories that we've already discussed the new world order that is culminating as we preach, the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist on the move, all of the, the ways that we could be marching towards the end of time with tribulation. Peter's saying, don't freak out. Don't be so worried about how it works or how it's going to affect our lives with suffering and require endurance and challenge us that we lose the primary focus of all of this. If all of our eschatology and study of end times and hope for end times turns us into a panicking people or people who are more concerned with news than we are with the good news, then we've lost the plot. Peter says then, and he says to us now, keep the end in mind and be clear-minded, focused, calm, steady, so that you continue to seek God. One of the great things about being a people who believe in an end view that has clarity to it 
is that the Bible teaches for the timeline of your life and the timeline of humanity that the clearer the end becomes, the more focused you are with the time you have left. Look what it says in Psalm chapter 90. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. I find myself comforting those who are mourning a loss so often with Psalm chapter 90. When the psalmist says, the more we realize that our days are numbered, the more our hearts are stirred to be wise, and it works for your own numbered days, and it works for the numbered days of the, the timeline of humanity. And when you really get a heart of wisdom, you'll know you have a stirring for the proper ordering of things in your life. Anyone who is getting close to the end of their personal life, and as Peter would encourage the church who is getting closer to the end of the story, he's saying, keep the proper order in place. Seek God through prayer. Your eschatology is only as valuable as your prayer life. It is only as good as it stirs in you a desire to commune with God through prayer. One of the only things that the disciples are on record as asking and requesting Christ to teach them is say, teach us how to pray. And some of his most valuable prayer moments was when his hour was at hand. Behold, my hour is at hand. Watch with me. Don't fall asleep. I have to pray. And as we think of not only the end in view of your personal life and of the timeline of humanity, as you think of just the end in view of this year, and you start to focus on all of the things that a fresh start and a new view on a new year can give you, here's a great thing to put on top of your list. May God teach all of us how to pray once again. The closer we get to the end, the more serious we should be about how we seek God. And prayer is one of those fundamental spiritual truths that is something that you receive as just the, the basics of following Jesus, and it is the most profound thing you can do with your life. All of us need to hear a call to seek God in our prayers. So we pray. How are we doing in end times leading to more prayer? And then it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another. Again, when time is limited, priorities get organized. If prayer is key to you loving God and fulfilling the basics of you just living out your purpose, which is to commune with God, the next list, top of the priority, is to return to the second great commandment, to love one another. And I love that Peter says, above all things. So today we have an object lesson. The top of the, the, the stage today is one simple word. It is the theme of week one of Advent. And it is for those of you who are on the sides and can only see the Christmas trees, the word is love. It's above everything else. And it's here as, a, as, a, as an encouragement, focus that there is no nativity scene without the motivation of God's love sending his son into the world that we wouldn't perish. 
but it is also a symbol of what has to be above all things. There are so many things we do secondarily in our lives that fall under the banner of love that are good and valuable. But if we lose the heart of love, it all breaks down. I again can use my own family as an example. I think of so many ways that each one of us kind of represent a tiny household of God in the way that we have our own households. And no doubt you have your household distinctives, the things that I always find my kid, I always find myself just reminding my kids. They're almost like the house rules or it's like the law. I always tell them to do their best or work hard. You know, if you, if you see a kid and they're just slacking, it's like work hard. When you go to school, do your best and work hard. When we ask you to do something, work hard around the house. I hope that's something that we can all see the value in that, you know, we have a limited time, so do the best with what you got. Um, don't be wasteful. That's one of my top laws. I feel like I'm busting them on that all the time. I give more food to the dog than I do to my own kids because they just, they see it, they take one bite and they leave. And I'm like, that's just not, you're not being good stewards of the food that we give you. Don't be wasteful. And of course, I'm always reminding them, stir, it is the season, be thankful. I mean, if there's one lesson that every kid should get, it should be Thanksgiving. They live for free under our households. I mean, they don't pay rent. They don't contribute to the bills. They, they do some basic chores, but they're mostly to give discipline. It's not like the kids that I have at their age, their chores are, you know, they're almost a net negative sometimes. <laughs> all I need in return is for you to say thank you. Just say thank you for all that we provide you. And as serious as I want to instill the distinctives of the household, or as serious as we can go, and study the distinctives of the household of God and how we should be serving and learning and being dedicated to the word of God and, and, and committed to the, the sanctuary and fellowship and all of the, the ways that we're called to do outreach and seek him through prayer. It all breaks down if you lose a heart of love. And my kids can work as hard as they want, but as soon as they stop loving one another, they've lost the plot. They can not be wasteful, but as soon as it turns into being selfish and not being kind and generous and loving, the law has broken. And they can even show some words of thanksgiving. They can say thank you and please and, and be kind with their words, but their heart can be far from a household of love. It all breaks down when you lose love. And so it is for our little experiment of being the people of God for such a time as this. We can have proper doctrine, proper view of the end. We can have the right ways to apply it to the real world. And if your end times or your eschatology does not make you more loving, then you're doing it wrong. Peter says, because the end is near, now more than ever, love each other fervently. And once again, I, I find a benefit in looking at some of the other translations that instead of saying have love, they say keep loving. See the ESV. Isn't that such an important way to understand the call of Scripture for us to love one another? Have you noticed that love has a grace period? 
I mean, you think about the relationships where you've expressed love to someone else and you care about them, maybe even gone into a deep relationship, even marriage. Remember that grace period time when the other person could do no wrong and everything they said was funny or charming and it lasted for a certain amount of time and then it's like the trial period ends and you have to learn to keep loving. It's easy to fall in love. It's very hard to keep loving. So it is with the family of God. When you experience the free gift, we sing, God so loved the world, he gives his son, his righteousness becomes yours, your sin gets forgiven on his cross. Free gift. And as you're a born-again believer in that promise, you get this amazing grace for the love of God for him and for others. All of a sudden, some of you no doubt have a conversion experience where you were like, I would never be a Christian. I can't stand Christians. Then you became one and you're like, I actually love all of you guys until you got to know us. <laughs> and then the grace period turned into this command to keep loving. And so it is, as we consider the endurance that is required to make anything go to the end. This is just a side bonus conversation for any of you who have been married longer than two weeks. You had to keep loving. You had to learn to fall in love again. And so it is with the church of God. God loves you, you receive it, you love his people, and you come to church, and the commandment is learn how to love once again fervently, earnestly, deeply, widely, beyond what would come naturally to you. It's more than just what springs out of you in the first initial excitement to be at church and experience new things. And he goes on to paint the picture of how far he wants us to go in earnest love in the very next verse. What does he say? For love will cover a multitude of sins. I think every one of us should underline that the only way any of this works, any of it, is if we learn how to forgive one another. We're all going to need the power of the love of God that is able to cover all of the ways that every single one of us here are still imperfect. We still sin against each other. The, the, the household of God is not the place where perfect people finally find each other. It's where imperfect people finally learn the power of God's forgiveness towards each other. And of course, anything this powerful is a two-edged sword. So the word of God is two-edged. There's a very sharp knife of the love of God that is bold and powerful forgiveness. It's essentially saying every one of you have a right to be offended, probably this morning, probably by this sermon, something I've already said, and by God's love, you give grace and you overlook it and you keep moving. It's a two-edged sword in the power of forgiveness of love, and it's a two-edged sword on the other side, very sharp, because love also rebukes. It, it, the verse does not say that love ignores sin, denies the existence of sin, love just blind eye to sin, and now everyone come as you are, stay as you are. Since we love one another, you have found a place where you never have to change according to the word of God. The last passage of scripture we looked at, it went through all of the fleshly lusts that were rebuking in the name of love. 
So this verse is not to give any license or cloak for evil where there is an abuser saying to someone that he's taking advantage of, well, I know the Bible, and it says you have to just cover all my sin. This is not a way for someone who's going through a season of addiction and trying, and they can just just call on the love of their family over and over again and never be rebuked in the sin that they're in. So it's two-edged, but the main point is with the end in view, get the priorities right, let go of all of the grudges, all of the ones that you can, all of the ones that God empowers you through his spirit to say, I forgive you, I hold it no more, I love you. Let's keep marching towards the end of the story. I love how one commentator puts this. He says, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. And now we can see the contrast is what we're being given the grace to avoid. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. As we read that in the second half of this commentary describes a loveless culture Do you not see the world that we live in? Every word is liable to misinterpretation. Everything that you do could be taken as a plot or an evil in your heart that you're actually not to be trusted ever. Everything that could be offensive is offensive. That is the culture we live in. With the end in view, God's people have the power to forgive and not hold grudges. So we love one another, we cover one another, we march towards the end together. And then Peter will say another aspect of the application, which is an extension of love, but it goes beyond into the, just the practicalities of the way that we live our lives together. It says in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It's an extension of this heart to love one another, but he has all of these practical ways of applying it to the body of Christ. So he says, with the end in view, become someone who is fervent in prayer, fervent in love, and someone, you have to really look at the second half of what we just read, someone who is a good steward of the grace of God. As stewards of the grace that has been given to every single one of you, practically love. And he gives the example of hospitality. What he's saying is, even though the end is in view, this is not a call to eat, drink, and be merry. Your name is in the book of heaven. You're good. Just hold on to this suffering side of eternity until you finally get there. And then when you meet the Lord face to face, he'll usher you in because you believed. And for those who are not as wise and as intelligent as you are, he will cast into eternal damnation. This is to say, you do have a call and a stewardship in the time frame that you live in. It's not a mistake that God has not returned yet. It's not a mistake that we are here with the, the theology of salvation, the security of heaven, and still some work to be done. 
God says, I've given you grace. It is by grace you are saved. And here's a great reminder for all of us who just worship God with the free gift of grace, not of works. We are here, no burden to perform, but grace is not a dead end street into your heart. It says you're a steward of grace. He gives it to you. He makes you alive with the power of grace. Then he says, now go share the grace. Here's a couple practical ways to do it. Be hospitable. I love, one, I just love the, the encouragement for all of us to think through our resources as a stewardship. Not as ownership, but whatever you have received, whatever you have is a gift of God's grace. And this is a good time to, to give a review of one of the great themes of our letter so far your exiles and pilgrims, the homes that you own, I'll say it again, are temporary. There is no such thing as a forever home. By God's grace, you have received and you have, whoever has freely received, freely give. He says, listen, you're just passing through. Use your home to welcome in the stranger. In the context that Peter was writing to, this meant offer them a bed and cook them a meal. We read hospitality and it's like, I'll make two hours on a Sunday evening at 9.05, I'll be looking at my clock. And that's why Peter says, and do it without grumbling. Meaning even if you welcome people into your house, there is a law above the law. When we welcome people in, this would be a great pre-Thanksgiving dinner or pre-Thanksgiving message. There is the tendency for us to obey with our lips and even our actions and miss it with our heart. Any time that you show anyone hospitality, kindness, generosity, you are potentially opening yourself up to the human nature response to feel like you were disrespected in some way. It's just a reality. And for those of you who hosted Thanksgiving dinner, I'm giving you just all sorts of ways to confess grumbleness right now because you invited people over and the kids played in the toy room and they didn't pick up and you have a no-shoe policy and they marched in with muddy shoes and broke a plate that you loved, favorite plate, it broke. Uh, they went for thirds. You don't even have leftovers after Thanksgiving. Can you believe it? Who are these people coming over to your house and disrespect you like that? Because human nature is human nature. And what Peter is saying is, Love them without grumbling because you know who does that better than anyone? God. Look who we are in God's house right now. We are in God's house and we are probably at times some of the most disrespectful guests to God. This sermon's a little long and this music's a little loud. Maybe it's too quiet. These lights are a little bright. It's like God's like, I'm just, just love me. Just worship me. And he never, ever stops loving his church never stops loving his bride. So he says, be hospitable without grumbling. And then he says, as each has received a gift, minister to one another. A couple things. Every one of us who are viewing the end in light of Christ, born again believer, you've got a gift. Praise Jesus. He has given every one of us a gift this holiday season. You've got a gift to be a blessing to others. Your gift is someone else's blessing. The upside down kingdom, when we give gifts to our kids or the, you know, the, the common way of gifts, you put someone's name on it, they get to use it how they please. And if they're a child, they probably say the word mine very first. When God gives a gift, he gives the gift so that you could be a blessing. That is why God has given 
all of us a gift. So the question is, and it's a question we don't spend a lot of time on because the word doesn't give any sort of spiritual gifting tests in it. There is no glossary at the end where you fill out your personality type and then the, at the end you do a math equation that says this is your gift. Here's a great way. If you're wondering what is my gift to offer the body of Christ and to be of service, start helping out and see how you bless people. In doing so, you'll also see how you don't bless people. And over time, God will give you grace to find where you are a blessing to the body of Christ. Some of you think you have the gift of singing. We'll let you know if that's true. <laughs> it might be a blessing. It might not be your gift. And so goes the line. Some of you, it's like, I want to just lead Bible studies and teach and preach and evangelize. That may be a blessing. You might find a, re, a fruit as your reward. And it may be something that you were willing and eagerness and God honors it. And then he says, but I got you over here. And whatever God, in whatever way you say, Lord, just use me, God will honor the request and he will put you somewhere where you find a spiritual blessing, not just for yourself, but for others. So the, the answer is, how can you be of service? And once again, we find ourselves counterculture in our view of the end. It is not to bunker down, think about ourselves, and cast a shadow over the part of the world that gets it wrong. We're people who seek God, who want to love all people, and try our best to be a help with the time that we have left. This is the, the basic instruction, according to the Bible, if you've ever asked the question, why do we even have to study end times? It is to stir up in you a desire to pray more, to love more, and to help more. And the closer you get, either in the timeline of your life or the timeline of the end of the world, God gives us a view of the horizon line so that this would be more and more and more true of our lives, our families, and our church. And at the very end of this, there's one that will put it all together. And, and we'll, we saved it for the, the very last verse. Chapter 4, verse 11. It says, if anyone speaks... Let him speak as the oracles of God. Meaning that some of the gifts may be speaking. Um, that is speaking on behalf of God. There's no room to say, hey, this is my ministry or this is what God is showing me for my own credit. Speak as though God has given you a word and for God's purpose. And then it says the same thing. You got gifts of word and you have gifts of deed. If anyone ministers, let him do as with the ability which God supplies. It is God's strength that allows you to do all that you do in serving God's people. And then it says this, that in all things, the end of all things, above all things, and in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In all things, there is one point in serving, in loving, in praying. It is that the God that is represented by this subculture, and every subculture has their God, has their glory, has their aim. And in ours, God has set aside his people to be holy and set apart, one of the themes of 1 Peter, so that in the way that we seek him and love one another and serve in any way that God has gifted us to do it, our God is made known to the world. 
Our God is glorified and our God is elevated as we anticipate the end. It says, through Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. Amen. This is a, a moment when you're just reading this, it's almost lost as we go through the letter. But Peter himself, in giving exhortation to the church, can't help but break out in worship as he considers the glory of God in the end of all things. The end of all things is the glory of God. That's where all of this is pointing. Your life, this church, the world that we live in and the end of all things is going to end with God being glorified above it all. Anything short of that has lost the plot. Your life, our church, the world at large is pointing to the glory of God. And in this, we find the secret ingredient to make all of this honoring to God. Peter says forever and ever, amen. It is in fact a doxology. Peter breaks out in a moment of worship. And we've said it about prayer, we'll say it about love and service. If your view of the end does not increase your desire for the glory of God and the worship of God to consume you, you're doing it wrong. It is all pointing the church and those who see the end in view to a moment of worship for God. And as I was thinking about that, it was like, at some moment, you may feel right now like a kid in a car on your way to heaven and you keep thinking, I don't know if we'll ever actually get there. I mean, even as I preach, you're like, is he ever going to get there? <laughs> there will be a moment if, if you believe in God, as Jesus as the visible image of the invisible God, the story of his death, resurrection, ascension, and coming again, there will in fact be a moment when he bursts through the clouds and he comes for his people. And I can't think of a better encouragement from the word or for your view than in that moment to worship. It is the best response. If I'm not around when this happens, just remember these words. When the day comes, be prepared to worship. That is where all of this is going so you might as well start now.